What's up, queens and royals? I'm your host, Angel, and you are listening to Awakened Love, a podcast on sex, love, and awakening. And these are the conversations to evoke the wise, wild, woke one within you. Let's go deep. Hello, Awakened Humans. Today I have with me Lisa Marciano. Lisa is a mother, she's an author, a Jungian analyst, a parenting expert, and a therapist. She is the co-host of her very own podcast, This Jungian Life, and I am so grateful to have her here with us today. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So for our listeners who may not be aware of Carl Jung's philosophy. Could you give us just like a brief overview? I know that's probably (laughs) not the easiest question, but just a brief overview of what it is. Well, Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist who initially was a collaborator and colleague with Freud at the beginning of the 20th century. But he and Freud sort of split ways And he went on to develop his own school. And some of the terms that you may know that are associated with Jung are introversion, archetype, shadow, collective unconscious. So he developed a real complete philosophy of the psyche. And one of the things that sets Jung apart from other theorists, well, there are many things, but I guess if I had to sort of condense it, I would say that he felt that meaning was very, very important. So a lot of uh, what happens in a Jungian treatment is we focus on issues of meaning. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting for those listening, I'm sure they've heard all of those terms, right? Mm -hmm. Introversion, shadow, there's like that's huge in the new age. Mm -hmm. What drew you towards becoming a Jungian analyst? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'd never been particularly interested in psychology before. And what I knew of it seemed like it was so focused on what made people ill. And then in my late 20s, I had an experience where where I got very, very depressed and uh, was dealing with a sort of enormous sense of loss and I couldn't find my way. And I had this experience where I I was living in Manhattan and I was in graduate school and uh, studying international affairs. But there was this little bookstore kind of across the street from my apartment and I used to like to go in there and I would always go downstairs to the psychology and self-help section. And then I found this book on the shelf that was called On the Way to the Wedding by Linda Leonard. And something about that book just called to me and I picked it up off the shelf and I opened it to some random page and I read a few lines and I started crying. Mm. I thought, well, maybe I should get this book. But then I, you know, I was in graduate school and I had like, you know, 300 pages of reading on international affairs. So I was like, I cannot be buying this book. That's totally irresponsible. So I put it back on the shelf. But every time I wandered into that bookstore, the same thing would happen. I would find myself in the psychology self-help section I would see that book, I would pick it up, I would open it to some random page, read a few lines, and burst into tears. Mm. So um, one particularly dark day, I was doing everything I could to be cheerful and not drop into sadness. Nothing was working. Mm. I wound up wandering into the bookstore, same thing happened, went downstairs, pulled the book off the shelf, opened it up, cried, put it back on the shelf. But on my way back to my apartment, I passed this little new age gift shop, the kind that sells like crystals and dream catchers and incense. And in the very back of the store, they had one shelf with about half a dozen books on it. And one of the books was this book, On the Way to the Wedding by Linda Leonard. And I thought, that's a sign I can't ignore. I need to buy that book. So I bought the book. Turns out it was a signed copy, signed by the author. And I took it back to my apartment and I started reading it, sort of read it straight through over the next day or so. And it so shifted how I was relating to my own suffering. Mm. It didn't take my suffering away, but it really changed my relationship to the suffering. You know, Jung said that we don't solve our problems so much as grow larger than them. Oof. And that, that book really helped me 
uh, expand out and understand my suffering in a new way. So that by the time I'd finished reading it, two things had happened. First of all, I was significantly less distressed. Mm. You know, I was still in pain, but it had really been a bomb because it had created this shift. And I was thinking to myself, huh, I wonder what it'd be like to be a Jungian analyst. (laughs) So that's how it came to me. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't long after that that I committed to following that path. And I mean, it took a few years and there were some twists and turns, but that seed was planted with mm. that book. For my ladies who believe in love, I mean like deep, soulmate, wild, orgasmic, true love, this is for you. I created Awaken Love because... No one should have to go through life without ever experiencing true love. And we live in a society that sets us up to fail. The baggage of so much cultural conditioning, the fairy tale, it all sets us up to fail in love. And then so many of us think it must be something wrong with me. And we internalize this brokenness and are left feeling defective. But I call bullshit You are not broken, my love. Your conditioning, your thinking about relationships, your beliefs and habitual ways of being, they might be expired, but we can transform that together so that you can attract this wild, open, soulmate love that you deserve from your deepest heart and not from your wounds. Awakened Love is an intimate four-week group coaching container and you'll experience body-based healing sessions, the power of pleasure practices, profound and in-depth written modules with self-inquiry to see how all this information applies to you and your life, making it all real in your own body with the rituals we do together in our live community calls every single week. It's everything you need for a spiritual and in-depth education on healing your original love and attachment wounds. Plus, the the powerful support of a community of badass spiritual witches, all devoted to the same thing, true soulful love. So if you are feeling the call, that soulful aligned, fuck yes, then I would love for you to apply. Applications are now open and we start in November. There are only six places left. So if you feel deep in your bones that one of those spots is meant to be yours, then you can apply very easily by heading to my Instagram at Angelique Rolana, A-N-G-E-L-I-K-A-A-L-A-N-A and just click on the link in my bio and then click the tab that says apply for Awakened Love Group Coaching November. And those of you that are successful through that first application round will get to jump on a call with me and we'll get to connect more deeply. So I cannot wait to meet the six powerful women that are meant to be on this sensual, soulful journey of transformation with me. So if that's you, even if you feel some butterflies or nerves, or perhaps especially if you can feel that this is your next leading edge, you can feel that stretch and head on over to Angelica Alana on Instagram, click the link in my bio and apply for Awakened Love group coaching in November. And the book, the title, On the Way to the Wedding, what's, is the content about love, being yes. a woman? Yeah, tell us a little bit about the content. It's, yeah, it's a beautiful book, and I would highly recommend it. And it is, uh, Linda Leonard, I think, I think the first line is something like, I have always longed for a soulmate. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it's her story of longing for and finding a soulmate. But through it, she also is informed by, she's a Jungian analyst and she tells stories from people in her practice. She uses films, she uses fairy tales, biographies of people to show the ways in which we can be blocked in looking for a soulful love. Mm. So is it kind of touching upon, and I'd love to ask more about this, this idea of like archetypes, like in the new age kind of movement, if you'll call it that, or new age content, you see a lot about, and I'm not sure if this is correct, so correct me if it's wrong, but there are seven Jungian female archetypes. Is that correct? Well, it's not quite that formulaic. Right. Is it more broad 
Yeah, it's a little bit more broad and fluid. But I mean, there certainly are different ways that the feminine can present archetypally. Right. So, I mean, we think of the crone. Yes. We think of the mother. Mm -hmm. We think of the maiden, the wise old woman, which is similar to the crone, or the witch, the sort of negative version of that. Yeah. Yes. The sort of anima woman who who kind of carries a man's projections. We were speaking before we hit record about how the divine feminine and masculine is this really prevalent idea. And from my understanding, again, I'm, I'm here to be educated, so correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, a lot of that new age stuff is drawn from or based on Jung's work of masculine and feminine. I think it is. That's my impression too. I'm not particularly knowledgeable on how that kind of got out into the culture, but it certainly, certainly seems that way. So one of Jung's insights was that every man has within him an inner woman Mm -hmm. that Jung named the anima. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a word that comes from Latin that means soul. So it gives Mm -hmm. you some sense of how important this was to him. Mm -hmm. And every woman has a corresponding part of her that's masculine. That's referred to as the animus. Mm -hmm. And this is both an archetype, so a kind of psychic universal that we're just, we all just come into the world with the capacity to experience, Mm -hmm. but it's also a kind of functional complex and meaning that it plays a particular role in our psyche. It kind of has a job to do. Mm -hmm. And part of what it does is it introduces us to our deep interior. Mm. So when you're in relationship, say, with your animus as a woman, that might feel very spiritual. It might put you in touch with your creativity. It's a little bit harder to say, what does this actually look like in practice? But I can give you an example. I've had the pleasure of working with many creative women in my practice who are writers or artists, and many of them will have dreams of a particularly entrancing male figure that they meet with and, and it often can be you know, very delicious and exciting or, or at least positive when they're working productively in their creative sphere. Hmm. So it's sort of like it's an, a picture in a dream mm-hmm. of what's kind of happening in the inner world that our mm-hmm. conscious personality has access to this inner other who feels um, sort of mysterious and fascinating. And oftentimes that is what, when we're involved in a creative project, it very much has that flavor. It's kind of like we're captivated by the muse. Yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert talks a little bit about that in her book, Big Magic, this idea of like the muse. I I love the term you used, an inner other, because Mm -hmm. it feels quite unique to each person. A lot of the stuff that I've read, and it's not really directly from Jung, and so I'm curious on your perspective of this, when you speak about feminine or masculine, it's like very specific attributes, like this is female, essentially, and this is male. Does that come through Jung's work as well, or is it a little more how you described it, where it's your inner other? You know, I, I think that this is really a tricky area because Jung was a man of his time. He was born in 1875. And so when you start talking about the anima and the animus, some of it, and you read his writings, I mean, in some ways, I think Jung was very progressive in terms of, you know, sort of relationships between the sexes. In other ways, he absolutely wasn't at all. And there is some, you know, kind of awfully misogynistic stuff Mm. in the midst of it. And nowadays, when we think about, well, what's masculine and feminine in a sort of psychological sense, you know, it can tend to drift into something that looks an awful lot like sexual stereotypes. Yeah. That women are receptive (laughs) and men are active. And it's a difficult, thorny place. And I think a lot of Jungians, it's a little hard to really square ourselves with. Mm. Um, And yet there's something useful about these concepts. Yeah. So I think, especially when you're remembering, well, we each have the, all, all those things within us, right? Mm-hmm. So these masculine, so-called masculine qualities are not just the purview of males. Yeah. Women can be active and thrust themselves out into the world too. Mm-hmm. And we do. And, you know, I suppose a classical Jungian would say, yes, and that's a woman accessing her animus energy. Mm-hmm. And maybe it is. I mean, that's one way to look at it. 
I think sometimes it's useful to de-sex these concepts a little bit and maybe think in terms of yin and yang. Yeah, I've talked a lot about this. and receptive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, these terms are hard to pin down. There's a little bit of a kind of gross feeling with trying to link it to men and women because it does feel really reductive. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think when we talk about the psychological masculine or the psychological feminine, there's a way where we all kind of know what that means. Yeah. So somehow underneath there, in spite of the fact that it's messy, there's something that works and that feels important even to differentiate. And, you know, for myself, I don't use these terms a ton or even these concepts too much when I'm working, but they do come in handy in doing dream work Mm. because it is true that, you know, women will often dream of a kind of fascinating male figure that can function in her psyche in a particular way. Yeah. And men often dream of a kind of fascinating female figure. Yeah. And thinking about it in terms of anima and animus can be helpful in understanding the meaning of the dream. Yeah, I like that because that seems very unique to each person. If you're interpreting someone's dream, you're interpreting their unconscious, their conditioning, their beliefs, it's very unique. And And something about that to me, which is why I loved the way you phrased it of like, their inner otherness felt something clicked for me there in Mm -hmm. in finding that Mm -hmm. useful. So I really, really appreciate Mm -hmm. that. I feel like we're kind of sliding into that territory. So how would you distinguish an archetype from a stereotype? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So Jung said that the archetypes are a psychic universal and that we're each born with this innate access to these patterns before experience. Mm. So actually an archetype doesn't have a particular form. Jung made this distinction between the archetype and the archetypal image. Mm. And he said, this is a beautiful metaphor, he said that the archetype is sort of like the pattern that's inherent in a chemical solution, that when it changes state, it will form a crystal lattice Mm. in a predictable way. Mm. So depending on what, you know, if it's salt, for example, salt will form particular crystals mm. that are, you know, you don't see them when you stir salt and water together. But if you allow it to dry, it's going to look a particular way because mm. of the kind of chemical, the, the structure of the elements. Would you say it's almost like DNA in a way? It's like... A little bit. I mean, I, I think maybe an easier way to, to think about it is that they're related to the instincts. Mm. You know, Jung said somewhere something like the archetype is an image of instinct. Mm. So it's an innate knowing, as it were. Now, when we're talking about stereotypes, you know, the uncomfortable truth is that many stereotypes, perhaps most of them, have some little element of truth in them. You know, they don't get started for no reason. And so if we're looking at sort of male and female stereotypes, women are kind of more agreeable. I mean, that's a stereotype. It also happens to be true based on personality research that women rate higher in agreeableness than men do generally. And then there's the question, well, is that nature or nurture? Now, I do not have the chops to make a final comment on that. Mm. However, I will say that from an evolutionary perspective, it does make sense that the person who is biologically equipped to bear and rear small children Mm -hmm. is less aggressive and more agreeable. Mm -hmm. So it seems to make sense to me that this might be a somewhat innate quality Mm -hmm. or, or have an innate or a sort of hereditary basis or something. Mm-hmm. So that's a stereotype, yes, but could it also be related to kind of the archetype, say, of the good mother? Yeah, I think it is. So it's all very mysterious and frankly, messy. Yeah, yeah. What it feels like, and let me know, perhaps you agree or disagree, it almost feels as though as you're saying, the archetypes like these base outlines, these instincts, and then the stereotypes are like what, which of those we were either rewarded or punished for adhering to and therefore either turn up or down the dial. On, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a good way to think about it. 
yeah, like creates this kind of interesting distortion. And I guess therefore stereotypes become an interesting place to research what is it that the world or our culture or our society rewards certain groups of people for Mm -hmm. and therefore which archetypes are most prominent. Could you talk a little bit about the maiden, mother, crone archetypes and perhaps how that relates to, I know the book you were saying really moved you is around like love and the journey to a soulmate. Do mm-hmm. those things relate? Do you think the those three archetypes in a woman's life and mm-hmm. finding love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, these are sort of different stages of a woman's life that call up different potentials. So if you think of the myth of Demeter and Persephone, for example, Persephone starts off as the maiden, Mm -hmm. you know, and obviously Demeter is the mother. (laughs) She's sort of the Mm ur-mother. And when Persephone is abducted into the underworld, it's really seen by Demeter as a disaster. Her daughter has been kidnapped. And that's the way we usually think about it. And, and it is one legitimate way of understanding the story, but it also could be that from the mother's perspective, the daughter's passage from maiden to mother always looks like an abduction. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why mothers cry at their daughter's wedding mm-hmm. because it's, you know, she's being taken away. It's kind of heartrending. But the, the truth is that Persephone goes down to the underworld And she becomes the queen of the dead. And in some parts of the kind of iconography, she herself becomes a mother. Mm -hmm. There's also the crone is in that story as well, because Hecate is the only person who saw the abduction. She's a sort of witch figure. Mm. She's represented by the waning moon, right? Like she's kind of linked to Artemis which I think our mm-hmm. listeners would have heard about. She's the, the huntress. So mm-hmm. Hecate sees the abduction, This the witch woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's the only one that can kind of point Demeter toward what happened as she's looking mm. for her daughter. So there's the sense of it's kind of a painful passage to go from maiden to mother. Mm. It's a kind of fall, as it were. But it's a necessary fall that allows a woman to claim her power and authority. Mm, And eventually that leads to wisdom. Mm, Yeah. It's almost like our society really glorifies the maiden in a way. (laughs) Would you agree with that? And do you think that that adds to the difficulty of the transition for a lot of women? Mm -hmm. I think that that's right. I mean, certainly our aesthetic glorifies the maiden. Yeah. And then I think in general, we're a youth-obsessed culture. And we don't like to face limitation. We don't like to admit that when we get something, we give something else up, which is always true, by the way. Mm. So (laughs) the most wonderful thing that you can possibly imagine getting, when you get it, you will be giving up something else. That's so powerful to consider. Yeah. And so that's the experience of, of sort of limitation and finitude. Mm. Yeah, it almost touches on this Buddhist principle that we were speaking with Sa. Our listeners heard about this like meditation on death and this being in touch with our immortality. Did Jung speak to that at all in his work? Of being in touch with mortality? Death and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course he did in some places. What it brings up for me is, and this relates to your earlier question too, I think. Jung talked about a certain psychological stance that he referred to as the puer or the puella. And puer, puella, the Latin words for boy and girl. Mm. And so that's another archetype, the child archetype, Mm. which can be a wonderful kind of life-giving image. But if we get stuck in living out that pattern in our lives then we are in a place where we're refusing to accept mortality mm. and finitude. And then we stay in this kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of like the Peter Pan complex. Yeah. We want to psychologically stay a child forever. Mm-hmm. 
And it, it tracks, if you want to think about it diagnostically with kind of dependent narcissism, these are really charming people mm. who never really settle down to anything serious. They're often just lovely, fun people. But as they age, it begins to look a l- less and less appealing. Mm. So a pu'er, maybe who's a playboy and you know drives nice cars and it's just the life of the party, but never settles down. You know, at 35, that person is really charming. At 45, there's still a lot of fun. At 55, it starts to look kind of pathetic. Mm. Because if you can't accept finitude and mortality, then you always stay in this realm of infinite potential, or at least it's, a, it's an illusion of infinite potential. Mm. And you think that you're holding all of your options open when really you're getting nothing. Yeah. I think you're having everything, but really you're getting nothing. Yes. It's like that willingness to choose the path you will travel and to not, and to uh, release the paths that you will not. Exactly. Exactly. What you're saying really hit home about, I've never heard it said like that before of in order to have anything, you're going to have to give something. I mean, even if you think about energetics, like, it will cost something and that doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? I think the way we see that. No, but I think, you know, so, so if you think about, I mean, let's just think of something. I mean, if you, let's say that you finally get a car and you've always been using public transport, I mean, this is sort of a banal example, but you'll have the car, yay. But what you've lost is um, the, the occasional joys of walking and using public transport, you yeah. know? You've lost that. I mean, when you get married, when you fall in love, you are choosing a person. That's what falling in love is. You're you're choosing someone and you're giving up other potentials. Yeah. Even if you're, you know, polyamorous, there still is something is coming into your life in this distinct form and you you don't have that space anymore to put something else in. Totally. And, you know, whether it's polyamory or, or any type of commitment, there's a level of choosing there, mm-hmm. I think, as you say. And I read a quote today by Esther Perel, and I won't be able to remember it exactly, but she was speaking along this lines of, you know, we all want to fall in love and you can fall in love and have infatuation and an adventure. But what about choosing a life with someone? Mm-hmm. Like this distinction between the adventure, the infatuation and the choice of a path. Mm-hmm. But I think it sounds like you're highlighting. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is leaning towards parenting, right? Because we're talking a lot about the path you will travel for the path you won't travel and commitment, sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, a parent, but it makes me think of parenting. In your book, so motherhood facing and finding yourself, you use fairy tales and myths and their wisdom to explore motherhood as a rich opportunity for personal development in what ways has choosing the path of motherhood for you helped you develop personally? Hmm. So very many ways. I mean, talk <laughs> about limitation. Right? Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. made me think of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there are things that if you become a mother, there are things you won't have and you won't do. Yeah. But you will have this other incredible richness. I mean, one of the things that I, I say in the book is, you know, in some sense, if the purpose of living is to know ourselves as well as possible. And I personally think that that is a pretty good hypothesis for what kind of the purpose of life is. I think there are few other experiences that will teach you as much about yourself as being a parent, Mm. partly because you're going to discover just how really awful you are. (laughs) It's like, it must be like romantic relationships can do that too, but maybe on steroids. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I've had clients that I've, we've done all this deep work with and then they go off and they fall in love and they have a relationship and they're like, whoa, I had no idea. I'm like, yeah, no, no, this isn't, you know, th- this analysis is like nothing compared to being in a relationship in terms of learning about yourself. Mm-hmm. And then parenthood is also kind of next level. So relationships <laughs> definitely teach you a lot about yourself. And Jung was very aware of that. He said, you know, you can't individuate on a mountaintop. You have to do it with other people. So being a parent will certainly teach you about how terrible you, like a terrible person you are capable of being. Mm. There's this Jungian idea of shadow, which is Mm. everything we are not supposed to be. So it's all the things we don't want to know about ourselves. And we sort of push it away and we say, no, I'm not those things. But 
you know, really we are. And part of our psychological task is to become aware of shadow and integrate at least some of it. And, you know, I think that most of the time when we become mothers, we think uh, we're, we're going to be loving, we're going to be warm, we're not going to make the mistakes our parents made. There's a quote that I use in the book from the novelist Faye Weldon. She says, the best thing about not having children must be that you can go on believing that you're a good person. <laughs> she, and then she goes on, she says, once you have children, you understand how wars start. <laughs> so the depth of rage, honestly, that I think I know I felt and feel sometimes at my kids, I don't think I'm alone. So, you know, I, I had no idea I was capable of that much volcanic rage yes. uh, at someone that I loved and cared about. I mean, that was shocking. I had literally this conversation with one of my mentors. She's a Buddhist teacher and I was asking her about motherhood and the lessons and she, such a calm and tranquil human being, said a very similar thing that um, one of her children, specifically the dynamic she has, that they're here to teach her about the rage that her, is inside of her and that mm -hmm. perhaps she had not yet expressed or learned to dance mm -hmm. with. So mm -hmm. I think that must be a theme. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that is a common theme. So Why do you think that is? Well, part of it is the, the kind of alwaysness of parenting young children, you know, mm. that they're just, it doesn't go away. It doesn't let up. You can't escape from it. You can't change your mind. It's not a job you can quit. Mm. I mean, you can, you know, hire childcare and send them to school and that kind of thing. But ultimately, if you're the mom, you're responsible for everything at the end of the day. And so it's just kind of superheated. Mm. Plus, the sort of emotional stakes are so high because you love this person fiercely, more than you could ever imagine loving anyone. And there's something about parenthood that really, really tests us. Mm. Was there something that surprised you the most about becoming a mother that you just didn't expect? <laughs> Everything? Yeah, <laughs> this is really banal, but there, I think there are sort of two things, and perhaps they're related. First of all, just the degree to which that once they start talking, they just talk to you all the time. <laughs> oh my word. Oh my word. And it's it was hard. It was hard. I'm not even a particularly strong introvert, but I am somewhat introverted. And just always having to engage these little people in conversation was exhausting. <laughs> And, um, and of course, you know, completely delightful at times too, but it just, you know, that it's sort of like, like, there's no, like, yeah, you can't talk to me right now because I'm trying to concentrate on driving or I just need to be in my own head for five minutes. It's like, no. Mm -mm. And the other thing is, I wish someone had told me this. It's like, this is like this big thing about parenting is that pretty much from the moment they're born, you don't just have to feed them, teach them, keep them safe, keep them dry, keep them fed and like whatever. You have to entertain them. <laughs> oh my God. You know, mine are now 17 and 19. And like, I still have to make sure that they're being like appropriately entertained because if not, they'll get inappropriately entertained. Lord knows there's plenty of opportunity for that. But I mean, I'm sort of being funny, but it's true. You know, babies mm. get bored and they need stimulation. And then little kids, oh my God, toddlers, if you, if you don't keep them busy, they just get into endless trouble. And, you know, older children, I mean, they start to get started. It's like, once they can read, it's like, oh, thank God, <laughs> you know, go sit down with a book. But of course, in this day and age too, and my kids are a little bit older so that we didn't have quite the same proliferation of screens when they were itty bitty. Mm. We didn't have smartphones back then when they were tiny. But, you know, it's like nowadays, you know, entertainment is mostly happens on a screen. And, mm. you know, of course, there's parental anxiety about that. You know, there's, it's not just TV anymore. It's iPads and iPhones. And is it okay that that's what they're doing? And they're playing computer games all the time. Oh, my God. Is it rotting your brain? So, you know, there's a lot of time spent thinking about how they're spending their time. Mm, so. Yes, all-consuming. What did you say? The all alwaysness of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> alwaysness of it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I want to pivot slightly. It's not too much uh, of a pivot, but did Jung's work ever talk about sex at all, or mm -hmm. you know, 
What did you find most interesting in that body of work? Mm-hmm. Well, Jung did talk about sex. Um, just think there's a really beautiful quote that I don't think I can land right on. One of my favorite jokes, which always makes me laugh, is that Freudians think that religion is really about sex and Jungians think that sex is really about religion. Mm. And, and it's somewhat true that, you know, Freudians tend to see everything as, as about the sex drive. And so that when, you know, you're talking about, you know, Teresa of Avila or something is talking about these ecstatic experiences with God, with the divine, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's really about sex. Whereas, you know, when someone brings me a dream of I'm having sex with my daughter, you know, people bring that dream in pretty often. And they're like embarrassed and what does this mean? And oh no, it's like, no, 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 no. This is about a desire to join with the qualities carried by your daughter. Mm. So it's a psychological desire for joining. Mm. Or Jung even had this kind of fancy Latin term for it, conjunctio. It's Mm. a conjoining. It's a coming together that can be deeply, deeply meaningful and, and is pictured by intercourse. In, in some mm. cases, I want to talk a little, go back to anima a little bit or mm. anonymous too, that when we fall in love, that experience always involves a projection of the positive anima or animus onto the other. Mm-hmm. So that incredibly magical feeling of being in love, part of what's happening is we are projecting something precious of ourselves onto the other person. So a part of ourselves that we don't really know yet, Mm. that we don't have a relationship with. And so part of the opportunity in the relationship is to get to know that as we withdraw the projection, as we inevitably do, um, that we, we have a chance to get to know that part of ourselves. Yes. That was kind of carried for a while by the beloved. Yeah, as reality starts to poke holes through the projection (laughs) Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the honeymoon stage comes screeching to a halt and we get to choose, yeah, do I want to be with the person who's actually in front of me? And it's beautiful to think about and get to know the part of me that I projected on them. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. good, the amazing, the bad, the ugly. Um, You've talked a lot about dreams and I wonder how we were also touching on shadow and like the idea of the unconscious. How do our dreams inform us maybe about our shadows or what would you say Mm -hmm. dreams are the richest source of when you're interpreting a dream? Mm -hmm. So dream interpretation is a big part of Jungian analysis. Mm -hmm. Jung had a very well-developed philosophy of dream interpretation that I, I think I'm right in saying that most therapists who practice dream interpretation nowadays and not many do but most who do are really working off Jungian principles. Part of our weekly podcast is we always we take a topic and just discuss it from a Jungian viewpoint. And then the, the last 20 minutes or so of the podcast is we're interpreting a listener's dream. Mm. And then we also uh, have an online course called Dream School. So Jungian dream interpretation assumes that most of the time, all elements of the dream are actually aspects of the dreamer's psyche. Hmm. So if you have a dream about your sister, it might be about your relationship with your actual real life sister, but it's also possible that your sister is an image of your shadow. Hmm. This is a little formulaic, but I more think of it as kind of a rule of thumb that same sex figures in dreams often relate to shadow and Mm. opposite sex figures relate to anima anonymous. Hmm. That's sort of like the starting point. Dreams are messages from the unconscious about what the unconscious sees is going on in our lives. Mm. And usually the dream comes along to tell us, "Ah, you're a little off kilter here. You need to move back this way here. Sometimes dreams come along and just give us a big thumbs up, Mm -hmm. but not most of the time. Most of the time it's pointing out where we're out of balance in some way. Mm -hmm. And it can be really difficult for us to understand the meaning of the dream because we're trying to understand the dream with our conscious mind when the dream is usually a critique 
of the conscious perspective. Mm. So it's really difficult to get up underneath it. And that it's why it helps to do it with someone else. Right. So back to shadow, if I can kind of give an example. Let's say someone has a dream about being in a car with her sister and her sister's driving the car and her sister's driving the car very fast. And then I might say, well, tell me about your sister. And this person says, well, my sister is really different from me. She likes to take risks and she can be really impetuous and we worry all the time that she's going to kind of get herself in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so what I might say then is you have a part of you that can maybe take inappropriate risks sometimes. Mm. And how is that part of you now driving things in your life? Mm. So that yeah. would be an example of how shadow might show up in a dream. No, that was great. It's it's similar to, I don't know if you, you've probably heard of IFS. Obviously, I'm sure IFS is a newer thing, so perhaps took cue from, from Jungian things, but it's yeah. that idea of like bringing the parts together and taking radical self-responsibility for all aspects of self, whatever's arising inside of us. Mm -hmm. So I Mm -hmm. like this idea of really taking responsibility for what arises in the dream Mm -hmm. as a piece of our psyche and our consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Sometimes with clients, I'll share that if they, I don't do any dream interpretation, but just when they talk about if they've had a really scary dream or scary images in their dream, I'm like, remember that's a part of your psyche. Mm-hmm. So rather than this like external force or quote unquote dark energy that you need to be afraid of, it's like your own darkness that's scaring you. <laughs> and, and also you many times dreams that contain frightening elements, the thing that we're afraid of isn't actually dangerous. It's just been decided by the conscious mind that that's not okay. Yes. An example that the person who had this dream gave me permission to use this dream. So I use it a lot to illustrate this, but here was the dream. I'm walking along the street with a friend, a homeless man with no arms and no legs is, you know, bobbing along the sidewalk after me, trying to take a bite out of my legs. Mm. We, we go into the coffee shop and, you know, he manages to get through the door and he's biting at my leg. It was a terrifying dream. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to figure out what is that homeless man? Mm. You know, what's menacing him? Mm. And the clue for me came when I asked about the friend. Mm. And he said, well, this friend of mine, he's really, really ambitious. He, you know, really wants to make partner at his law firm or something. I can't remember the details, but, you know, and he's really on his way. Well, this, this man was quite talented and, but felt really conflicted about being ambitious. Because he came from a family background where service was really prioritized. And, and he genuinely valued service and helping others. And at the same time, he you know, had tremendous kind of intellectual resources and wanted to kind of go out and do something with them. But he, he felt like he shouldn't. Yeah. He felt like that would be selfish. So I think that the the homeless man on the street was an image of his own split off ambition Mm. that was dogging him, that was not letting him go, that he'd Mm. sort of cut it off. He'd cut Mm -hmm. off its legs. Mm. It was disenfranchised. It was homeless. Mm. But it was approaching him, not because it actually wanted to hurt him, but because it was asking for acceptance. Yes. I want you to pay attention to me. I want you to relate to me. I'm important. But the conscious mind is like, that's a bad thing. Yeah. So it shows up in the dream as something threatening from the standpoint of the ego attitude. Mm. So interesting because this actually comes up a lot in somatic work as well, is if, which is some of the work that I do, if, if a part of someone is very isolated and has been very rejected, as you say, by society, their parents, their ego structure, that part might manifest as like a really violent image or an obtrusive yes. thought. Yes. And exactly as you said, it's just desiring acceptance or it's afraid of everything because it's so isolated and usually Mm -hmm. very young this Mm -hmm. like really unconscious instinctual just protect myself tadpole energy (laughs) manifests as these really scary images but it's so nice or comforting in a way to realize that that these parts of our psyche no matter how scary have positive intent for us just desire they do 
Yeah. Usually even if they they're don't. misguided, mm-hmm. <laughs> at mm-hmm. times misguided, but yeah. Well, and they're then, usually not misguided if we know how to relate to them the right way. Mm, yeah. Say more on that. Well, again, you know, it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually say in this dream that the homeless man was misguided. The yeah. homeless man was absolutely guided correctly. Yes. That this man, the dreamer needed to get in touch with his ambition. And it was the dream ego who's misguided. It was the conscious attitude that's misguided, mm. you know, and the, and the task becomes then to turn around and face that content. And Jung said that when you turn a friendly face toward the unconscious, it turns a friendly face toward you. Oof, powerful. Mm-hmm. Therein lies really the power of dream stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's right there. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. these images that seem, what did you say earlier? The, the unconscious's kind of judgment on the conscious mind's mm-hmm. viewpoint and how it's behaving. It's like a beautiful mm-hmm. way to actually get in touch with the deeper parts of you that perhaps are outside of our conditioning. Mm-hmm. Does that feel true? Oh, absolutely. I mean, dream work is incredibly powerful. Mm. I've seen it change people's lives. Mm. How could people start if they wanted to just do a little bit themselves or is it something you couldn't really do yourself? You know, it is hard to do it yourself because of the reason that I just gave. And I mean, honestly, it's hard for me to analyze my own dreams, you know, because I'm coming to it with the attitude that's being criticized. Right. So it is easier to do it with someone else. There are dream groups we have our dream school that is a 12-month program that kind of walks you through it and gives you access to various resources, including dream groups. Mm. There are good books about it. I personally like, there's a, a woman who wrote books on dream interpretation. Her name is Gail Delaney. Mm. And um, they're a little bit older, but she wrote some that are very academic and scholarly and some that are very kind of basic the basic ones I think are great. I think there's one called like Living Your Dreams, I think is the mm-hmm. name of it. It's sort of like young light, but it's a great way to get started. Mm. There's probably other good basic books. I would stay away from dream dictionaries. Okay. That will say, well, if you if you if you dream that your teeth fall out, that means this. Right. Because it doesn't take into account the immense importance of the personal associations. Yes, that makes perfect sense. So, Yeah, so powerful. I feel like I could pick your brain forever and ever, but we are drawing to a close and I would love to move into the rapid fire questions if that feels aligned and inspired. Sure. Who has been your most important teacher? You know, I'd have to say my mother. Mm. Oh, that's resonating. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. What book do you gift people the most or recommend? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably Jung's autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Mm. Someone comes to you and they're feeling really down and you can only give them one piece of advice. What do you say? Let yourself feel your feelings. Mm. What's the most important thing for successful relationships? Uh, being authentic with oneself. Mm, no one's ever said that. It's beautiful. If you could be any animal, what animal would you be? Oh, that's easy. A bird. I would love oh. to fly. Oh, yeah. What type of bird? I, I wouldn't be picky, honestly. But, um, <laughs> I don't know. Crows are fascinating. Oh, yeah. Very, very mythical. Lots of myths <laughs> about them. Uh, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oh, that one I know. I would love to be able to take a book, put my hands on it, and absorb the content of a book in lightning fast time, 10 or 15 minutes. Because I have so many books I want to read, and I I just don't think I'll ever get through them all. I don't have enough time to read, so I wish I could absorb books faster. Yeah, I feel you on that one. What is the best or worst sex advice you've ever received? (laughs) (laughs) Boy, that is a hard one. (laughs) I don't know that it's advice so much, but I feel like there's so much emphasis placed on having an orgasm. Mm. And I think that we miss out a lot when we're just focused on that. Oh, yes. Yes. (laughs) Pleasure for the sake of pleasure itself. I talk a lot about this like capitalistic extractive outcome obsessed culture and how it affects our sex life. So yes, I couldn't agree more. And funny thing is, the less you focus on it and enjoy pleasure, the more orgasms you have. (laughs) (laughs) Paradoxically. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> kind of a metaphor for life. If you could only take one spiritual practice or tool with you to a desert island, desert island, deserted island, either way, either. <laughs> what would it be? Probably dream work. I, I thought you would say that. Yeah. No one <laughs> ever said that. That's cool. Uh, what is your favorite thing that you own? Huh. Uh, right now I have this beautiful jacket that I love to wear. It's very mm. colorful. Mm. Bless. It's a fun question, right? We have to think about it. We're like, oh, something that you believe is true that other people might think is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Working with our dreams can give us contact with something like the divine. Mm. Yeah. If you could eat one meal before you die, what would it be? Mm, it would definitely be Mexican. Mm. Probably burrito. Yum. <laughs> and last one, if there was a universal answering machine that you could leave a 15-second note on it that everyone in the world was going to hear today, a few words or sentences, what would you say? Uh, everyone would hear... That your life is unfolding exactly as it should. Mm. Bless. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your energy here today. Where can our listeners find you and connect with you? Well, my author website is lisamarciano.com and my podcast is thisjungianlife.com and that's also where you can find out more about Dream School. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for gifting me with your most precious resource, your time, attention, and your energy so that we can continue to awaken together and to elevate the level of consciousness on this planet to ensure that we are all thriving in love and sex in the way that we all so richly deserve and that is so possible for each of us. And if you want to connect with me and my work more deeply, I would love to see you over at Instagram. Click the link in my bio and apply for Awakened Love group coaching in November. Have a beautiful week and we'll connect real soon. <laughs>